Welcome to the Lighthouse Conversations, a podcast featuring entrepreneurs and tastemakers from the world of arts and culture, tech, and of course, food. I'm your host, Hasho Montasser. One of the things we take great pride in at the Lighthouse is the experience. The Lighthouse is really more than just a restaurant. It's a restaurant, concept store, and communal hub all in one. And I remember having this very experiential type of experience somewhere else before. This was 2002 when I first entered Diwan when it opened in Zamalek, not very far from where I live. Diwan is a bookstore cum cafe and was the brainchild of Nadia and Hindu Wasif and their friend Nihal. Its opening immediately made a splash among members of the community and delighted bibliophiles across the country, myself included. So I'm delighted to be joined by Nadia on this episode to share with us why Diwan was so special, how it kicked off a lifelong relationship with books, culminating in her decision to write her own book. Nadia, I feel you and I have had these conversations without a podcast for many years now, an ongoing conversation uh, that started in Cairo and moved to Dubai and at some point happened in London. And I'm so, so happy to have you with us here. There's so much to talk about. Um, So thank you, first of all, and welcome. You know, Hashim, you are one of the most insightful listeners I know. I mean, yeah, obviously you're also a talker just like me. So this is <laughs> a very big problem. But you are somebody that, yeah, from other podcasts that I've listened to, I love how you have a very high level of empathy and how it translates. And I love that. Thank you. You're, you're, very, you're very sweet and I appreciate that. Look, as I think I mentioned to you, this has been also learning for me. I mean, obviously, I do love to have those conversations and we've had many with close friends like yourself, but um, that whole podcast process has been also for me a learning, great learning, frankly. And there's certain things that I also learned not to change, even though they may not be optimal, but I feel it's more me, it gives me comfort. So uh, there we go. I'm going to start with something that um, while I was doing my research for this episode, I picked up on your um, agent's website. It spoke about your love affair with books. Walk us a little bit through what that means for you. When did it start and the various ways it manifested itself? I have to say it started, I mean, my earliest memory, I mean, proper memory is at the age of 12, uh, having discovered Agatha Christie and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. And, you know, this detective genre. And and the sadness that I felt when I realized, A, that they had died, and B, that there was a finite number of books. That, you know, once you got through all of them, you're done. There's no more. There's this this (laughs) finite nature. And I think that's what made me a hoarder. You know, I really, and I still have the, the books that are sort of, you know, yellowy and dusty and, and that, but I have every single Agatha Christie that she's ever written and every single, you know, Sherlock Holmes mystery ever. And it began there because I think essentially, you know, um, I was a 12 year old. I was extremely uncomfortable in my own skin with who I was. And thank God I didn't grow up in the age of social media because I wouldn't have survived. So this was still an age where we had Channel 1 and Channel 2 and very that. little on them. Yeah. And uh, and thank God, because if, there were, if, if I was seeing what my teenage daughters are exposed to today, I wouldn't have made it. So essentially for me, reading began as an escape. And it was in English because I went to an English school and we weren't allowed to speak Arabic on the premises at the time. I did not so, know that. Okay. No, no. I mean, and, and it was funny. I mean, it was called the British International School um, in Cairo. But we were outside of Cairo. We were actually in England. Because, you know, I mean, Cairo's weekends are on Friday and Saturday. At the time, our weekends were Saturday and Sunday. I mean, now they've changed that in the school. So, you know, you were, you were living in a parallel universe. You I know, was the same the- at German school. Similar. Saturday and Sunday and parallel universe, 100%. Yeah. So... So it began, you know, and I knew more about English literature, English history. You know, I mean, I, I, it, it's, it jars me today to think that, you know, I knew more about Oliver Cromwell, Lord Protector of the Commonwealth, than I did about Muhammad Ali, mm. who I only probably actually learned about in university mm. as part of an Arab history class. Um, I saw 
Egypt in ancient Egypt, but I only got to know about Egypt, modern Egypt, for instance, as part of the Arab-Israeli conflict. Um, and so there is this uh, kind of dissonance that happens in your upbringing, in your outlook. Uh, and I, you know, I, I mean, till today, I read very comfortably in English. I read in Arabic less comfortably. I have to go back and reread the sentence. You know, sometimes if, I, if my mind wanders, it's like you have a, a reading imagination that will make up for what you've yeah. lost. Yeah. It, you have a, it's a reading intuition almost. I don't have that in Arabic. I want to differentiate between the written word and books because I feel you have a, a, a relationship, so do I, by the way, and we've talked about this before, with both. So the tactile feeling of holding a book, a physical uh. book, and also reading as in the written word, which can be, as you've just said, through screens, tablets, whatnot. Do you feel your love affair extends to both, or is it specifically to the feeling of holding a book yeah, and then yeah, reading? Both. both. Yeah, it's, it's not just, you know, and I've realized that I'm not a gentle owner of a book. I don't like to lend out my books, as you know. And, uh, and when I do, it's sort of like lending money. You, you, you only lend what you can afford to lose because you work on the assumption you're never getting it back. And, um, and, you know, I, I sort of take books and I open the spine and I write in the margins. And it's, a, you know, it is, a, I think every act of reading is a historical act. It's this meeting between a writer and a reader in a certain moment in time. You know, the, um, I think it was Heraclitus who said, you know, I don't remember the exact quotation, but, you know, uh, a man cannot uh, step into the same stream twice, for he is not the same man and it is not the same stream. And it's the same thing. No two readers will ever read the same book. And on that note, I, I, I mean, the same book in the same way. And on that note, thank you for sort of differentiating between, you know, the, the, the sort of books, actual physical, you know, paper physical and book. ink, physical books, and sort of, you know, e-books and so on. I've tried. I've tried. I really have. And mm -hmm. I've, I've tried to suspend my disbelief and I've tried to really like ebooks. And I don't. You don't. I can't develop that same relationship. And I remember 10 years ago when industry experts were saying, you know, this is the demise of publishing and now everything is. And I'm so happy because, I mean, music is completely digital. I mean, when was the last time you bought a CD? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I love how books have been the outlier and the survivor. Made a big comeback, yeah. Yeah, and, and I mean, in 2018, this was the year of independent booksellers. This is the year that more independents opened. It was the year where um, actual paper and ink, physical books outsold e-books. It was a brilliant year. And did you think all along, when you go back to when you were 12 years old, that you would have a relationship with books beyond your love affair and affinity for reading and affinity that would extend, I mean, pretty much throughout your career. I mean, if you look at the major stops in your career from finishing university, doing your master's in various, on various different topics and various fields, but then starting launching Duane with your sister and a number of other partners, which was essentially, we'll talk about this in a minute, a bookstore. And then I'm going to just fast forward to you now writing a book. So essentially, you've had that association with books pretty much throughout the last, you know, 25 years. Did you imagine that to be the case? And was that no. a conscious decision? You see yourself always going back to the concept of books. I never imagined it. And okay. it was never a conscious decision. But I think that when I look back on certain key moments, I think that the best moments in life or the most meaningful moments are the ones that are not conscious and not planned. Life, you know, the saying life is what happens when you're making other plans. It is very true. And I think those of us that are lucky at times to allow the coincidence to unfold and to go with it, or at other times to actually listen to what, is, to what the world is telling you and to act on it. Um, but there's definitely never been anything intentional. I mean, the one thing that I realize, and again, I don't think I ever did it on purpose, is that at every rapture in my life, I've gone back to school. Interesting. Hence, as my mother tells me, you know, it's, it's ridiculous 
but you have three masters degree. She tells me, is this, are you collecting? <laughs> you know, is this, is this, what is this? What's wrong with you? I mean, you know, there is, of course, you know, a certain level of pride, but in her mind, she's like, why are you doing this? And for me, it's always that rupture moment. It's, I, and I come out of it after having gone through a master's degree or a moment of learning or whatever, there's a paradigm shift that follows it. And at the time, I'm never really conscious that it's happening. But when I look back on it, that's the meaning that comes to mind. Was it a form of healing? I'm talking about your last master's degree now, because clearly you had been around books and literature. You already had a degree in comparative literature. You are very well read, very well versed with a lot of writers. You interacted with a lot of writers uh, and authors during your time with UN. So I don't feel that you needed this as a pre-qualification to write your own book. So how much of it was psycho you know, psychological or the refuge or, or a healing process versus, you know what, I need to learn the techniques of writing? No, I have to tell you, Hashem, I thought I was well-read. Mm. I did. I'm not. Okay. And there is a very big difference between the art of reading and the craft of writing. And it is a craft. And in many ways, um, and, and, and in the last couple of months, I've gone through the process of finishing the manuscript. And by finishing, I actually, you know, my mother um, uh, learned, I mean, she supported herself in the 60s uh, by making clothes. She was a seamstress. And, you know, and I watch her finish clothes, you know, and the hemming and, and a proper, you know, and a proper stitch. This is an art, you know, it's not, and it's, you know, and when you hand stitch something. And in many ways, when I was finishing the manuscript under the very, very capable and guiding hands of my editor, I felt like there was a lining, you know, a batana, and it was being fit properly. And it has to be loose enough to allow the exterior a certain malleability and yet tight enough that it maintains a structure. And I felt that the same thing was happening in the book. And, and that, you know, and, and it is a craft and you can't, it needs a light touch and you can't be heavy handed. And as you know, I'm a little bit heavy handed. <laughs> so, and I found myself working against myself and, and in many ways learning how, you, you know, it was so painful. And I, and I know most people wouldn't understand this, but I think those who have tried to write get it. You agonize for days, hours, even weeks over a paragraph, a sentence. You keep going back to it. You, you change a word, you move a comma. And then you think, only because of the amount of time and effort that you've invested, that this is brilliant, okay? And then your editor comes along and reads it and bins it. And you're devastated. And you, you know, and I tried very hard in the beginning not to be precious. Can, can I interrupt you just for a second? I want to set because I'm very interested in process. Um, I wanna just do the setting here. Your writing, when you were writing this book, which is mm. going to be published next year, inshallah. Yes. What is the process like? You wake up and you start writing. Do you dedicate a certain time slot to it? Can you just walk us through your daily writing process, routine? No, I, I, let me set the scene for you. So um, I started, my uh, master's in creative writing in 2015. I finished in 2017. Um, and at the time, my dissertation was some short stories based on my days in Diwan. And it was a mix between sort of, you know, feminist rant, um, uh, social history, social critique, books, book selling, uh, story of the the whole the whole it was just a, a a mix of all of these different genres, and um, and uh, my my, uh, my advisor at the time suggested that I write this, and I told her that I want to escape out of this. I don't want to go back to my Diwan days. I start I started in two thousand and one. We're now twenty seventeen. I don't want to. It's been sixteen years of Diwan. And she said, yes, 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 but I feel like you need to do this. And then I went to Hind, my sister and partner, and she told me, what a terrible idea, but do it anyway. <laughs> that sounds very much like Hind. Yeah. And she was absolutely right. because So I did it, and I wrote it. And then um, 
I binned it. I mean, it, it did very well for me as a dissertation. So that is one function. And then to start, um, and then in 2017, I said, okay, so I need an agent. So I went out looking for an agent. And at the end of the day, you know, what is special about me? Nothing. But the only thing that is special is the story of Diwen. Well, it's a story that you helped create. So, I mean, it is special, but I mean, you are a protagonist in the story uh, and have a point of view, which is what you're sharing with the audience, essentially. It, yes. And, and, but, but so to engage with an agent and, and, and I felt that if I had come out as sort of Arab woman doing uh, a fiction or something, I, you know, but, but a, an ex-bookseller writing about bookselling in Egypt and sort of with this sort of east-west nexus in the middle of it, I thought that would be interesting. And in many ways, I think this was the last time I consciously thought about marketplace. So that was the packaging, essentially. I mean, you, you understood the kind of, in a, in a more business terms, the value proposition of, of why this is marketable. Okay. Yes. You found your agent you got to the process of now you're staring at a blank page. What happens? Yes. So what happens next is that I, you have to write a book proposal. And the reason I'm giving you this long-winded version is that there's two different, there's two different uh, plans here. When I was writing a book proposal and then editing and modifying chapters to be sent out to publishers in the hope that they would take on this book and buy it, um, I had one system. When I was actually writing the book, there was a completely different system. Mm. The only thing that they had in common was that I would wake up at 4 a.m. every morning and go. And, and in the beginning, when I was in the book phase, I would sit in my pajamas. When I was in the proposal phase, I would mm. do this in my pajamas. When I was writing, I would dress. Because I, in my mind, this was um, a job, this was a profession, this so was a task, and it was going to be done, and I would start at four, and I would leave at two. In the rehearsal phase, which is the pre-book being picked up by a publisher, when you are, as you were saying, doing the proposals and sending maybe various samples, chapters and whatnot, did you feel that you were able to be yourself in terms of what you're writing, or did you always have to think about the audience, in this case being the editors and the publishers and so on, and being, I need to write something that gets, grabs their attention? How much did you feel liberated to just write? And how did that change in your actual book writing? Yeah, no, I mean, in many ways, when you are writing a proposal, you're not really, um, it's not really a work of creative fiction as much as it's almost a non-fiction. You know, it's a proposal. At the end of the day, you're speaking to, you know, publishers. So that was on your mind, editors. very much. So. Yeah, and, and you know who your audience is and there's a specific format that you follow and, and, and. When you're actually writing, I mean, when I was working on the different chapters of the book, I would start at 4 a.m., I would only stop for coffees and really it was just to make another pot and uh, and I would uh, finish around 2 p.m. So I would put in about a 10 hour day um, and then at 2 p.m. I would sort of do everything else that needed to be done. And from 4 a.m. to 2 a.m. 2 p.m. Sorry to interrupt again. I'm just very, very interested and I suspect that some of the audience uh, members will be interested as well. Um, when you fade, you go up and you do another pot of coffee. So that is kind of a pickup. Um, are you just literally sitting on your laptop on, at a desk or are you at sitting desk. in your bed or are you sitting in a garden? Or No, no, no. I'm sitting at my desk um, in my study. Every, you know, everything is closed. Phone is on silent. And it's really, and the reason I started 4 a.m. is because it's, you're just, the doorbell is less likely to ring. Sure. Emails are less likely to come in. Uh, your kids are less likely to want things. Um, the world is just less likely to come to your doorstep. And are you writing or you're also, uh, I don't know, navigating in your study, maybe picking up a book to think about something? No, no, is there no, a free no, association? No. no, it's writing. This is the truth. No, it's writing. And even when it's a bad writing day, I'm still writing. Okay. But the, you keep but, 
oh yeah 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 and it's sort of like the decent stuff happens from four to ten maybe and then from ten to two I've lost a bit of steam so I'm editing I'm rereading things I've done uh maybe I mean it's very rare that I have you know from four to two a stellar performance it isn't and having said that you know the life has constantly taught me that the minute you take yourself seriously is when you become a laughing stock and so I refuse to take myself seriously. I'm not going to take, you know, I'm not a good writer. I'm not. I mean, compared to the people that I have, you know, that were in my classes, that were, you know, incredibly gifted. What I will say for myself is that I'm extremely resilient and I'm becoming quite thick skinned. So when, you know, I, I, I get, you know, when I, when I give my editor 25 pages of, you know, blood, sweat and tears, and she returns to me three and tells me, I think these were interesting. You know, I mean, the, the, when that happened in January of 2020, I wanted to kill myself. When that happened in November of 2020, I was like, you know what? You're right. But I'll tell you what, let's bin those two and let's start again. Honestly, I don't think Nadia is giving herself enough credit. I've seen her work over the years. She's a great storyteller, has a ton of wit. And in drafts she shared with us in the past, has a great deal of insight, which does make her a great writer. There's a lot more to talk about with Nadia and her life during her Duan days. Plus, we'll get the exclusive scoop about her book and its title on the other side of the short break. Hi guys, I wanted to share a quick update from The Lighthouse. We've expanded our delivery radius, yay! And we now cover a Safouh and the Palm, going up to Media and Internet City, as well as JBR, JLT, Discovery Gardens, and Emirates Ailes. So if you haven't tried it out, hit our Instagram account, at the lighthouse underscore AE, where you can click on the order food button and get our amazing classic dishes at home. We're also on Deliveroo for those diehard Deliveroo fans. And don't forget, if you're a Spotify user, you can also find us under The Lighthouse Dubai when you can listen to a collection of all our favorite playlists compiled by Mykonos DJ and Lighthouse Music Director, John Hanlides. Welcome back. You're listening to The Lighthouse Conversations with Nadia Wasif. As we were talking with Nadia about her writing process, I learned that she's incredibly self-aware of who she is and where her limits are. I want to tell you, funnily enough, in preparation for this uh, conversation today i listened yesterday to a podcast funnily enough it was jerry seinfeld um speaking with tim ferris who's a very well-known podcaster and, and and personality and jerry seinfeld is not who you'd come to mind in terms of right but of course when you think about it of course he writes all his own material so jerry seinfeld is actually a brilliant writer he's 66 he said exactly almost verbatim what you've said which is you know he's fully aware that he has a limited attention span in terms of the ability to produce super high quality work. Um, he limits it to a certain number of hours, very much like you per day. Um, and then in his case, and I'm going to ask about you, Tim Ferriss asked him, so what do you do sort of to maintain that muscle, let alone, let alone grow it because maybe hard to grow at 66. And he's saying one of the best accomplishments he's feel in his career has been not his many successes that we know, including Seinfeld, but has been that at 66, he's still able to produce high quality writing every day. Two things he does, just something to share with you, is he does transcendental meditation twice a day and sometimes more. And he does weight training three times a week. And he says these two things are part of his routine to maintain that integrity and focus. Uh, there are days, like you said, that are better than others. But generally speaking, that's what he does. Do you do anything for fun or relaxation that you feel enables you to maintain that focus and energy? Well, look, in the last nine months, thanks to lockdown, I've become a ridiculous walker. Okay. As in, I, I, and I was never, you know, I mean, Hashem, you know me, I avoid exercise at all costs. And when I do do it, it's just to allow me to eat and drink more. That's all. I mean, I don't have a relationship with the outdoors. I don't have a relationship with exercise. That's just who I am. But I have to say that this year has been the year, and I'm talking about walking somewhere between 10 to 15 kilometers a day. That's your meditation, essentially. It is. It's the, and I don't return calls when I'm walking. Yeah, yeah. And I don't, you know, I always have the urge to multitask because that's how we're brought up. And that's how, you know, you run a business, you deal with friends, family, kids, 
No, this is Just actually walk. my time and I walk and sometimes it's meaningless. I mean, it's not that I'm walking towards somewhere. No, no, I'm sure. just walking. And, um, and I daydream. Mm. And that's my time to just let my mind wander, which is not something that, you know, as a control freak, as somebody who is on guard all the time, you, you don't. And, and this is my time to wander. And I love it. And I think that sustains me. After I finished, the first thing, you know, and, and I was on a Zoom call with my editor and we had all these different changes in the document and there were very few left. And then, uh, you know, it was 10 o'clock at night in London, uh, 5 p.m. in New York for her. And we reconciled the last uh, outstanding comment. And she said, it's a wrap. And I said, what? You know, and, and I... <laughs> And I sort of got tears in my eyes because I was like, no, 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 no. You can't take this away from me. This has been my best friend. This has been the thing that got me through lockdown. This has been my confidant. You, you can't take this away from me. I have no life now. And I spent, and it was a Friday night. And I spent that weekend upset, actually upset. Like I had lost something. Yeah, yeah, of course. I can completely and, understand that. And then I started reading. <laughs> I have a stack of books that I haven't had time to read yeah. in the last six months. And this is what I'm doing now. Can I ask you, Nadia, just before we move on, during that process of writing, beyond your editor, obviously, how do you, do you get any external feedback? You know, this is one of the things that I've actually found a little bit disturbing. Mm. Um, so I've, I'm, I'm now I just have to write my acknowledgments page. And I, you know, as usual, I look to other writers or I look to other books for information, for inspiration, for feedback. And I've started looking at other people's acknowledgements, you know, from fiction, nonfiction, what they just. And I'm amazed at the amount of people that have read other people's work. And in my case, in this process, I mean, when I first started writing, you know, I shared some chapters with some friends. Um, But I mean, you know, nobody gave me, one friend actually, gave me sort of line by line structural feedback on two chapters. Hind, who, you know, was my partner in Diwen, is my partner in Diwen, is my sister and soulmate. Uh, at some point, I stopped giving her and she didn't really want to read it either. And she's in it, you know, so... It's just doubly problematic. 100%. And, and I think this is a, um, you know, every one of us has a different relationship with Diwen. And, um, and, and in writing this book, I, I hope that an exorcism has happened. I hope that Diwen and I are now going to be happily divorced. I really do. Um, it would be really ironic and funny if it sort of cemented our relationship you, you further. Don't, we don't know yet. It's, it's too early. And, and this is a brilliant segue into the Diwan chapter, which we are going to get to. So my recollections, uh, my early impressions of Diwan back in the day. I still have your email. Yes, I, I was going to get to that in a second. First of all, I remember uh, the first Diwan is Amalek and just being blown away. It was really... My first experience, at least in, in Cairo, with a place that sort of worked fully experiential. And I think it actually stayed with me for many, many years, uh, even when you guys moved on to other things. And when we launched the Lighthouse was very much on my mind. And you remember a conversation that we've had about that. I think part of having a restaurant and a concept store and combining those two and understanding the value of something experiential where one plus one equals three, in many ways came from the experience at UN because many of us didn't just go to uh, buy books or buy a gift. We went sometimes just to read. And frankly, sometimes just because we were around the corner to have a cup of coffee. So the experience was very, very profoundly, I think, had a lot of influence on not just me, many others. The fact that it was so re rooted and steeped in, in its community, first in Zamalik, but then in other parts of town as you, as you grew, was really such an important uh, insight in a way and something that in Cairo we hadn't seen. You had these bookstores where we came in and out, if you remember. I mean, you, you'd leave your car, leave the blinkers on, run in, snatch the book, run straight out, and you wouldn't want to spend a minute more without mentioning names. That was not the experience at Diwan. 
when you guys had that concept in, 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 in your minds, how far was concept from the reality of what UN became? Well, let me, let me throw this back at you um, with the lighthouse. I mean, when you started, I mean, we, we had conversations about the lighthouse. And then, you know, the lighthouse started. And I visited you in April 2019. Correct. And, and I was blown away. I really was. But Thank even you. in April 2019, there was no thought of the lighthouse conversations. And I think this is one of those moments where I think clever entrepreneurs, I think just clever people in general, uh, listen, they have that intuitive moment and they listen to that, um, to the voice, to the whispers that are around them and they go with it. But going to Diwen, for instance, when we began, the concept was that we wanted to create a place that we'd like to hang out in. That was the guiding thought, really. And I think with most successful brands, they come from a real place and they elicit an emotional reaction in you. Whether and you are the target creative, audience as well. Yes. Your own target audience. I felt the same thing about the lighthouse. Exactly. You wanted a place where you could go. You could enjoy a certain kind of food, a certain kind of drink, uh, be in an atmosphere, meet a certain type of person. In going back, I mean, Egypt, what is very interesting about it is that, you know, Cairo, for instance, is a village. You know how interconnected everybody is, uh, regardless of class, ethnicity, education. Everybody's life spills into everybody else's life. And so when you are talking about a place that is so communal, um, in many ways, it's very easy and very difficult to cater to the element of communality because you can miss it. And because people have it in so many other places, Yani, yani men, for instance, they go to the Ahwa, they go to the barber, el all of these different places fulfill functions for them. I think women, miss out on the, this feeling of community, although women are more community-oriented than men. So for instance, when you think of Habamas and the concept of the public space, and this is where people become part of a community, and this is where public opinion is born, almost. And then you think of Ray Oldenburg, the sociologist who came up with you know, the coffee shop as the third place. So the natural progression, I mean, and then there's this idea of the marriage of books and coffee with all these Western style bookstores, the Borders, the Barnes and Noble. The... 100%. And we didn't have that in Egypt. We had the love of the third place, but we didn't have the third place. 100%. There was none yet. There was no like yeah. third wave coffee and all that stuff. Exactly. And, and so in many ways, we started building something where, that we wanted to hang out in, that spoke to us. And again, Yani, this is something I would like to highlight, although not make a big drama about it. But at the same time, you know, the public space for women is not always a welcoming space. And Diwen was one of these places we had primarily, um, you know, as your podcast, for instance, does. We have more women that listen to that, that come to us than men. Yeah. And in the many ways, was, was more women leaning. Yes. Yes, and it was funny because it was, you know, we started it, I was 27, Hind was 30, Nihal was 40. Um, you know, this was the bracket that we attracted. In many ways, the women that came to us were a reflection of us. Yeah, and today, I wouldn't be able to sell a book in Diwan or I wouldn't be able to stock Diwan because I don't really know my target audience anymore. You know, I haven't lived in, 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 in Cairo for the last seven years, I, I, I don't know who I'm selling to. And I think that sort of that intimate, intuitive knowledge is extremely important. And it's what you have in the lighthouse. Yeah, I think that's, that's right. And I think you, you understood this very well, uh, you and Hind and Nihal and, and, and the people that you've hired to work with you. Now, as it grew, and, and we've gone, we are going through this as well, which is why that's such an interesting concept for me. So I remember the initial DUN and then I remember the expansion plans and it started growing and it was very successful and it was such a brand to the point that I remember telling your sister and that one of the things I took pride in is that people would walk with the DUN bags and that in itself was a statement and believe it or not when we did the 
our branding for the lighthouse, that's something that was very much in my mind because we had a gifting store or a concept store that those bags in and by themselves in a way, I mean, maybe we're not Tiffany and we're not trying to be Tiffany, but mean something. And that was very much the case with UN. Um, and I remember my mother, you know, walking around with these bags everywhere and put all sorts of other things in them. But as you expanded and it became more and more, not that it wasn't from day one, but like a business and you had to think about margins and cash flow and capital expenditure, etc. And you know, hearing you, hearing you talk about capex and and all this stuff, and and oh my god, I, it actually <laughs> makes me panic. I'm, so, I'm sorry, actually, don't okay. I, I would, I'm miserable. Would try to avoid no. the panic attack on 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 the show, but um, <laughs> but let, let me let me tell you honestly. Um, mm. I'm not being self-effacing, and I'm not being humble, and I'm not being any of the above. I think we were wrong. Or let me not speak about we. I'll I'll talk about myself. I think when we decided to expand, I think we should have left. We should have sold off the business, had someone else scale it and leave. You know, I talked about branding as a release of a certain emotion or to inspire a certain emotion. For me, Diwan was too emotional. And this is one of the problems that um, I, I made a lot of wrong decisions because I was emotionally guided and I was attached. And today I'm actually quite detached from the when. But you were in your late 20s and it was your baby. I mean, I'm only yes. pushing back because I understand that very well. I mean, we're going through this in the lighthouse. There's the original concept, there's the baby, and then you start expanding. And I don't agree that... I think it's impossible at that moment in time, in hindsight, yes, to just say, you know what, I've, this is my baby. This came out of our heads and respective, we put our heart and soul into it. Now this is going to become a bit more about numbers and growth and revenue. We're out. That's just not a decision one would make. I'm just being I wish, But not- I wish I had. I wish I had made okay, that. Okay, that's fair. Um, but so here is something else. I think that also, if I can just be a bit mechanical and boring about this, you know, dreams, you know, you dream, you dreamt of the lighthouse, I dreamt of Diwan. So dreams reside in our imagination, in our heads. So what happens when a dream leaves your head? So first of all, there is a problem of definition. It is no longer a dream. It is now a physical entity and it has a life of its own. And this is the problem, I think, that, that you know, it's left the realm of the imagination. It is now a physical manifestation and you're still trying to control it. For me, I think it, it took on a life of its own. And if I can, you know, I have a, I have a relationship with Duen where I actually think Duen is a person. Uh, that's how much the brand is is in my head. So I actually think she didn't want this expansion. And I think she sort of told us, okay, you're not listening to me. I don't want this expansion. You go ahead with this expansion and I'm going to make your life a living hell. And I'm going to make you hate it. Can I just ask you something? If I, because expansions require capital. And if I remember correctly at the time, as a result, as many of us do in in, in smaller businesses, you go out and you raise the money from external parties, which, of course, then have a certain say over what you do and what you don't, what you sell and what you don't. If I would have told you, Nadia and Hind, uh, at the time, here is, you know, a million dollars that's yours, that's sitting there in cash, you can expand, but you don't need to bring anyone on board. No new shareholders, no board, none of that. Would you still feel the same way? With DUM. But again, you have to understand, you know, I sound nuts. We, we both agree on that. But within the case of DUM, let me tell you that um, I would have, if I can go back and do it with everything that I know now, I would not have even raised the funds. Mm-hmm. I would have done an organic expansion from within. It is almost like to allow the business to regulate its own growth. That's a great point. You know, and I think, and and by that, I really mean organic in the true sense of the word, that I am not, you know, I've raised uh, 10 million, let's take this 10 million and open 12 branches in seven different uh, uh, governorates. No, I open one. Oh, maybe I can take out a loan. Maybe I can leverage this. Maybe I can do that. 
um, you know, even even uh, uh, to bring on partners per specific store to have a kind of a franchise model that's not really a franchise, but to sort of bring on soulful partners, if you will. Um, but then, I, I mean, this isn't a one-size-for-all venture. No, but I, I love that insight. It really is a great insight because I think, and I never really haven't really thought about it this way, as you just rightfully said, you are self the business self-regulates itself when you grow on a, as on a how much I can basis versus yeah. a something that's fabric not fabricated but external that you bring on. And she, meaning her being Duane, instead of dumping cold water on her head, you're just saying, you know, dip a toe and slowly yeah. get comfortable in the in the in the bath. That's I think that's that's absolutely correct. And it's not just that it translates in terms of finances or or expenditure or risk, but it also the people in the organization, you know, at the end of the day, business is the people, you know, and so for people to actually be comfortable with the expansion, to buy into it wholeheartedly, to grow with it rather than, I mean, you know, I, I listened to Amira Rashad's podcast of Balkwiz, which I thought was fantastic. Thank and you. one of the things that struck was when she was saying that, you know, all of a sudden, you know, they're, they're growing exponentially. You know, it's in the middle of COVID. You have to hire all these people. You can't actually hire them. You can't move them. The warehouse. The... And so and at the end of the day, you don't want to be forced into that position. You know, you want to be able to um, to 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 go into this growth, this expansion in a way that is organic and sustainable and makes sense, not just financially, but to the people that are that are carrying it. And I'm not even talking about you as the entrepreneur. I'm talking about everybody involved. Yes. And for the brand and people absorbing the brand at the brand value. I mean, we all know how many cases do we know of restaurants, bookstores, retail brands that we thought were great, niche, fantastic, but then we found them in every other corner and they lost that feel. I think a lot of entrepreneurs feel they have a choice between two extremes. Extreme number one is Nadia opens one duan only. It's boutique, it's in Zamalek, it's three meters from her house. Her friends come in there and then we, they call it, usually dismissively, passion project. As if Nadia has nothing better to do, so she does this to, mm. to entertain herself. It's not for profit, it's not really something serious, she does it. And then the other extreme is once this little passion project is seems at least viable, we go and do 700 of them in two years. Yes. There's something in the middle where both the consumer and the entrepreneurs and the people working there can absorb a meaningful expansion. And what I love about what you said is if you're doing it within your means, in other words, just to translate it to the, some of the listeners, if the business is throwing off enough cash that allows you to do two and three, it probably will not in the first couple of years allow you to do five, six, seven, and eight. That's okay, and that's great. It's a self-regulating mechanism that's allowing you to grow systematically but intelligently. Um, is that your main insight from your period there? Was there anything else that when, I, when we look back on it today? There is always the cliche of, you know, I've only learned from my failures and all of that, but it's actually very, very true. You know, and I'm going to put, um, you know, entrepreneurship, business, whatever uh, you choose to call it. I'm going to put it on a par with motherhood. You know, you can sit and plan as much as you like. Um, but the reality is that there is no substitute for actually getting it done, allowing it to unfold. And then you have to be prepared for the fact that it makes you and then breaks you only to remake you again. You know, if you can survive being broken by it um, and not be bitter, then you're in very good shape because you can remake yourself. And I think this is one of the things that Diwan has very kindly done for me. You know, it, it sort of made me actually, it, it, it made me the person that I am. It then broke me because, you know, I was getting very, very big for my boots about how fantastic Diwan was. So, of course, you know, you have to be demolished. So I was completely demolished for a while. And then it allowed me the, the luxury of, of rebuilding myself. 
and and remaking myself. And I think this is one of the things that um, we don't actually think about a lot, is that every business, every person, it's a narrative. It's a story. You know, the lighthouse is a story. Every single one of the, the podcasts that you've done. To come here full circle, Nadia, did you feel, um, I hope this doesn't sound overly harsh, but I just want to get your view on this, that you needed to write the book because you wanted to have the last word on this episode of your life? Or did you need to write this book because you had things off your chest you wanted to put out? Or was it just cathartic and, and sort of healing? I mean, what was... Or you, you didn't really think about it and just sort of happened? No, I'll tell you there are two things. First of all, while I was writing, I resisted um, the urge. And every time the imaginary reader came into my mind, I pushed it out. I didn't, you know, like when you're writing, then you start to think so-and-so is going to read this and they're going yes. to think. No, no, Do you no, think no, that no. helps you with not posturing then? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. I, I wrote this book for myself. Okay. Now that it's sort of gone off on it, it's like having kids, yeah. you know, you do your best and then you send them out into this world and you hope for minimal damage. Yeah. And this is my sentiment behind it. Only you and I don't, because when we, are, we like to micromanage and control, no, 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 sort of... 2020, I, for me, oh. has taught me the one lesson that I will come out of 2020 with is that Everything is outside of my control. So I'm on my own now. I did not know You're that. Your, I did not get that. And everything and everyone that I love dearly and I'm, I'm very passionate about is outside of my control. Deal with it. That's <laughs> 2024. That knowledge, when you take that knowledge and you treat it rather than something that, you know, for, control, for well-seasoned, well-versed control freaks like you and I, this knowledge would be demoralizing. It would destroy us. If you now flip it on the other side and you look at it and think, wow, what a relief. There is nothing I can do other than accept. Then you're golden. Deal with it. I love that. That's a great slogan for 2020. Deal with it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, deal with it. Just deal with it. And then in answer to your question, so I wrote this book for myself, but why did I write it? I think... At the time, again, I have no idea why. I mean, other than, you know, it, for my dissertation, my advisor suggested it would be a good thing. After that, when I started writing a proposal, it made business market sense. But then I actually think I needed to explain it to myself. And when you write, you have to understand to be able to write. So... The process of writing, the step before it is understanding, and then you can put it into words. And it wasn't, um, you know, and I just have to say that like most things in life, like projects, like books, what I thought this book would be is nothing like what it has turned out to be. Projects, books, people, they take on a life of their own despite our plans. And, and I think that that, in, again, Hashem, in, under the, the veil of 2020, I'm going to tell you that is also a relief. That it's not what I thought it would be. Uh, it's not what I expected, but I'm very glad that it is. I think that's brilliant. I have one last question for you. I feel we could speak, we could go on for hours, but um, for the sake of, of everyone's sake, <laughs> I will keep it to one last question, which I think is, is relates to a lot of what you've sent. Um, how has this changed? Has it changed your relationship to Egypt and being an Egyptian in any way? So I left Egypt in 2013, uh, but I also realized that Egypt left me before then. And, um, and I thought, you know, that I could only uh, have a relationship with Egypt if I was in Egypt. I've since come to realize that, no, I can have a relationship with Egypt anywhere in the world, that Egypt, home, uh, identity, nationhood is something you carry within yourself, okay? And it unfolds regardless of you. Now, it's very funny because my relationship with Egypt has become uh, much more uh, concentrated, uh, it's sort of, I feel like it's become an essential oil in a sense. You know, it's got that sort of very focused, concentrated element about it. And it largely unfolds on 
you know, in music and in books uh, and in films. And unfortunately, and maybe this is because I'm becoming a bit of a dinosaur, um, is that uh, unfortunately it is not uh, contemporary. So the music- And it's not tactile necessarily. It's almost kind of like in your head. In my head. So it's like a lot of people, I mean, we, we talked about this before, I think a lot of these artists, for example, that leave and then you look at their work and it has, it's so inter intertwined with their identity and home, but they've created their own collage, which is their, you know, way of looking at it. Yeah, I listen more to Umm Kalsum now. I mean, this book was written largely with the background of Umm Kalsum's songs because, you know, they're 40 minutes long. There's three lines in them. <laughs> so it's, it's not overly Brilliant. vocal, yeah. much more instrumental. And so I'm not uh, distracted by the vocal, by, by, the, by the poetry. But when I hear it, it's a welcome relief. Um, but, you know, so I listen much more to Umm Kalsum now than I ever did. Uh, I read Salah Jaheen more than I ever did. Uh, you know, it's just, and it's an Egypt that does not exist today, but it exists in my head. And for that, I am grateful. And I'm not giving it up. It's mine. I think that's beautiful. And that's a great conclusion. Uh, would you exclusively reveal on the show the title of your new book <laughs> and when it's coming out? I love you. Um, because I feel like the title is right behind you, partially. So, yes, like yes, you have a visual title. embodiment of the of the, of the title. Uh, the title is Shelf Life Chronicles of a Cairo Bookseller, and um, fantastic title, by the way. Well, I, I look. I love. Um, you know, I, I often we've joked about this, and I've often told you everything has a shelf life. Hundred percent. Friendships, marriages, uh, relationships, and jobs, you know. So, so this is really about, you know, everybody's shelf life. And also the fact that for the better part of 15 years, the happiest moments of my life were on shelves, were, you know, arranging books on shelves, talking to people about books that I think they should read, people telling me about books that I should read or stock for Diwan. This was, I had a very, very active shelf life, and I love it. Nadia's book will be out in October 2021, published by Farrar, Strauss and Giroux, and available wherever you buy your books. You can also connect with Nadia on LinkedIn or on her Facebook account, and you'll find the link in our show notes. Thank you for listening to the Lighthouse Conversations with me, Hesha Montasser. We're produced by Chirag Desai, and our content director is Farah Sharif. Make sure you don't miss any future episodes by visiting thelighthouse.ae forward slash podcast and clicking on the subscribe button. You can also find a direct link on our Instagram page at thelighthouse underscore AE. We'll see you in two weeks.